to all you Oklahomans who are interested in getting backstage with some really fascinating people. Welcome to Pepper's Podcast. Hey, it's Pepper again with Pepper's Podcast. Tonight is episode four, and we have the director of the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation joining us. Uh, this is going to be a really important podcast for me because of the passion that J.D. Strong has for exactly what he does. It's a treat to actually get to talk with someone that loves everything about what they do. And with that, I'd like to bring on J.D. Strong. All right. Thank uh, you, sir. JD, thank you for joining us. Uh, you are the director of the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. And tell us your path to becoming the director. Well, just so you don't think it's gonna take a full hour, I, when, I, when I start with going back to my great grandpa, everybody's like, oh my gosh, how long is this story gonna go? But it's important to my path because, you know, I grew up out Western Oklahoma, uh, great grandpa still alive for a, a really good part of my life. And he farmed through the Dust Bowl out there. And so, it, you know, he taught me everything there was to know about conservation and the importance of it. And, you know, when you're farming, conservation is critical. But he also is the one that um, was really instrumental in getting me in, into hunting and fishing and appreciating that wildlife resource that um, that he grew up on out in western Oklahoma himself. So, you know, it really started there and always had a passion for, for fish and wildlife and conservation and all all critters great and small, and um, really did well in, in science. Um, interestingly enough, I thought I was gonna go into aerospace engineering because, you know, I think Top Gun influenced me and all kinds of weird stuff, you know, and I have, you know, there's an astronaut in town, Tom Stafford, Weatherford. So all that kind of excited me too. I figured out my freshman year in college that I was passionate about science or good at science, but engineering is mostly math and I hated that stuff. So. It's interesting, just a twist of fate that flipped me into this degree program called wildlife ecology. Everything really clicked there. I was like, yeah, this is this is exactly what I like. And then, you know, I took a long road in other natural resource agencies as I progressed in my career at the Water Resources Board, Secretary of Environment's office. Um, so I wasn't directly in Department of Wildlife up until four and a half years ago when the existing director said he was retiring and it was a rare time when the department actually opened the door to outside candidates to apply and i was like oh my gosh this is my new york yankees job i've got to go for it i'll kill myself if i don't it could be you know another lifetime before you get this opportunity again and so i went for it and you know they decided to go with me and it's that perfect situation where um you know you've heard it said if you get a job you like, you don't work another day in your life. And that is how it's been the last four and a half years so far. And Director Strong, I mean, I can visually see the passion you have for what you do. Um, tell us, big picture, the Department of Wildlife Conservation, what are you tasked with? So like most states, um, the, there's a state agency that's charged with protecting the public's trust resources. And in our case, it's the fish and wildlife species of the state. So, you know, they're not privately owned. They belong to everybody within 
the state of Oklahoma, and it's our charge to manage it for the benefit of all of the public. And so since 1909, when our um, first game wardens were created by the, the legislature, this agency has been around tasked with the job of really growing hunting and fishing, growing healthy fish and wildlife populations across the state and, and protecting those resources. Uh, and those that engage in outdoor activities um, to be able to sustain that long term. And, you know, sure enough, we can point to a lot of great successes. Um, when Oklahoma became a state, it was at a time when, you know, there weren't a lot of wildlife agencies out there protecting that resource. And there was a lot more market hunting. And you think about what happened to the bison and lots of other animals that um, were hunted for commercial purposes and pretty much wiped out. I mean, statehood, no deer, hardly no turkeys, no ducks, no you name it. And now we're in a place of abundance nowadays. So that's, uh, which is a great thing for us and, and really what we're all about. And, you know, increasingly I tell people, you know, for the last hundred years, our job was growing wildlife and we're now starting to really focus on the fact that the next hundred years for us is growing passionate hunters and anglers and outdoors people um, because um, we, that's who sustains wildlife conservation, fish and wildlife conservation. It's those license sales, it's taxes that are collected when you buy guns and ammunition and fishing rods and, and archery equipment, all that money is, is the only money that goes into wildlife conservation. We get zero taxpayer dollars at the Department of Wildlife. And, um, I, I was planning on talking about this later, but this seems like a perfect time in, in your opinion, does hunting actually benefit the wildlife populations and um, related? Does fishing actually benefit the fish populations? Absolutely, it does. Um, and it's as long as it's done in a scientifically based and regulated manner, which, um, you know, we we like to promote around here for sure. But absolutely. I mean, I, I just talked about you know, people aren't donating millions of dollars a year to the department to manage healthy fish and wildlife populations. We've got to raise that money somehow. And that model, going back to the 30s when the Pittman-Robertson Act was passed by Congress, setting aside 8 to 10 percent of the excise tax on um, firearms and ammunition sales, pouring that into a grant program that gets doled out to the states to do wildlife conservation and then license sales on top of that, helping to sustain it. That that 60 to $80 million we spend every year is our agency budget. That does not get sustained. I mean, you think about, you're not getting that from just donors who are, you know, feeling generous about wanting to protect wildlife. I mean, it is the sportsman. It's the user pays and the public benefits is what, how we like to kind of say it at the end of the day. And then again, um, that can control the harvest of those animals is also important because we live in an environment now that is not native and natural. I mean, this, you know, it's, we have a very man-made industrialized society now, and some wildlife populations would grow completely out of check and then have increased disease and starvation and all those things if it weren't for a selective and regulated harvest of those animals, which today takes the place of those predators, those apex predators that were on the landscape before, um, before this place was settled. So, 
that's the other piece of it. And so as long as we're staying on top of it and managing it and making sure we dial up or down the harvest rates for those animals to match what they're able to, to sustain, it keeps a healthy balance on the landscape, allows people to participate in this, not just this lifestyle and having fun as we do when we hunt and fish typically, but also participating with their wallet. And, and the department will, based on science, alter, change, increase, decrease, bag limits, uh, catch limits, anything that they anticipate would be a benefit to the wildlife population for the next year. Does that sound right? That's exactly right. In fact, we're going through the process right now of um, due to seeing some species decline in, in wild turkeys in western Oklahoma, we're decreasing those counties that used to be able to harvest two toms a year. We're busting it back to one tom a year in those, most of those western counties where we're starting to see some alarming declines in the population. So that's a perfect example of, you know, what we do. And so I, I guess the next logical question is the decline in turkey. Uh, the decline, at least from what I see. So I, I lived in western Oklahoma. I've seen a decline in quail. Um, is that cyclical or is that something that the, the department is tracing and trying to figure out how to counter? Yeah, so it's typically for the species you mentioned, um, turkey, um, quail, really a lot of wildlife species populations are cyclical. Um, you know, the quail is a great example of one. You, you, even though we remember what the glory days were like in the 80s when we were hunting quail everywhere and having great success, it's not like that today. But you may recall 2015 and 2016 were, you know, they bounced back pretty good and people had some really good hunts. So it just kind of shows you the up and down nature of it. Turkey are the same thing. We're, we do fund millions of dollars of research every year with um, you know, whatever leading university, OSU gets a fair amount of our research dollars just because they have a, a, a solid um, wildlife conservation program there. But, you know, we also have them um, doing research on quail, um, getting ready to start some on turkey just to see if there's anything else on the landscape. Is there some other thing besides weather and habitat, which are typically the leading causes of population increase or decline? Is there something out there that we haven't put our finger on that could cause a more long-term decline of the species, some disease, some predator, you know, is feral hog, um, which is growing rampant in the state, um, a cause of that decline, and we're not going to see them bounce back if we don't curb that predator on the landscape, you know, what could it be? So we're constantly looking at those sorts of things too, but typically it's cyclical and typically going to be very habitat and weather driven. Of course, there's only one of those that we can have any control over and that's the habitat side of things. And so um, when you talk about the cycle, the cyclical nature of, and I'm just going to use quail and pheasant and turkey because that's what I'm familiar with. Um, does the department have numbers going back, let's say, a substantial amount of time to where you can really analyze the cycles or has the state not always tracked those numbers? Yeah, so we have long-term harvest numbers, which are typically our best data set to get a feel for, you know, when populations are in decline 
and you know how many licenses you're selling, so you know it's not related to a decline in license sales. If you see a decline in the harvest rate, you can, it's a pretty good indicator that those populations are in declines. People are having less success, right? And so um, though, that's the really solid long-term data that we have. Now, actual population estimates are a little harder to come by, and those are just going to be based on periodic assessments. There, it's rare for us to have a species where we just have 40 years of annual population estimates. We do have some of that with deer, um, but probably not so much on quail, pheasant, turkey, that kind of thing. Make, makes perfect sense. Um, but now we are working with data sets going forward to analyze the cycles a little bit more efficiency with a more efficiency. Um, the the feral hogs. What do we do about that? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> it is the scourge of the landscape, and you know they're spreading. Um, you know they used to be confined to Texas and you know some of the lower rung southern states, and now they're they've of course spilled across the border and are doing quite well in the landscape. And it's tough to do anything with them just because they are so prolific. Um, they can live in just about any environment. I mean, from, you know, the Arctic to the equator, um, they're perfectly comfortable in either place. Great scavengers, they'll eat anything. And probably the, the worst thing we have stacked against us is that they're capable of having two and a half litters of pigs a year on average, and those are 10 to 15 pig litters. And so you, they're, you know, very prolific breeders and so i've heard it said by researchers that if you're not harvesting killing 75 percent of the hogs on your landscape each year then you're not keeping up with their reproductive rate and so if you've you know we don't we don't have great estimates of how many are out there but let's just say there's you know 500,000 750,000 let's say hogs out there, if we're not killing 75% of those a year, we can't outpace their reproductive rate. So it's, you know, it's a challenge. A lot of people, it's become a popular hunting sport, even though it's not a game animal that we protect or manage here in the state of Oklahoma. Um, it's become second, tied for second with turkey and deer is only the, the one that leads um, in game, in game harvest species. But, you know, it's, such a prolific species, we tell people hunting is not gonna really do the trick. I mean, it's like trying to stop Eastern red cedar from spreading one ax at a time. So unless you're trapping big sounders, you've got helicopter um, suppression out there, you're really not making much of a dent. And we are working with um, some of the leading researchers in Texas on a toxicant that we hope could be brought to market soon. It's going through a lot of research trials right now, but you know that would be another um, bullet in our arsenal, so to speak, if we could ever get a toxic bait that we could put out in the environment, get the hog to eat it, ingest it, and spread that, and, and not have you know the biggest challenge with that is not have associated deaths of other wildlife, non-target species, and that's always a big challenge. But there's hope for, for sure. some of that on the landscape. And so um, the, the invasive species, the feral hogs, that's uh, a problem in Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, New Mexico. Does the state of Oklahoma cooperate um, frequently when you have 
a problem that is, um, you know, across the borders. Is that necessary to cooperate with the other states? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we do, like I mentioned, we're cooperating on research um, right now. We do have a, a couple of new pilot projects that were funded through some farm bill money that was set aside at the federal level to do pilot projects in states or multiple states at looking at more effective ways to really have some high intensity pressure and see if we can really make a dent in a feral hog population in a particular area. And so I mentioned that because one of our, we were able to secure two of those pilot projects, um, which was really good, um, really tough odds for a state to secure one, let alone two. One of ours is along the Red River and it's a partnership project with Texas. So doing increased suppression of hogs along the Red River on both sides of the border down in southwest Oklahoma is, for example, one of those partnership efforts. For sure. Um, switching to the hunting and the public lands that the state has to offer, uh, is the state's position right now to try to increase the amount of public lands that are going to be available for people to hunt? Or is the state feel like we have sufficient public lands for people to hunt? What are, what are you guys forecasting? Yeah, so the forecast for us would be, um, I would think, measured growth in that area if we're allowed to do it. But, um, you know, we've got... First of all, people probably don't realize 95% of Oklahoma's landscape is private land. And so this, this is not like one of the other Western states where, you know, some of those Western states, well over half of the land is owned by the federal government. Um, and so um, that's not the case here. We're 95% private, and that's great. That's what we love about Oklahoma. Um, we're talking about a very small fraction of the landscape that's actually um, in our hands for public hunting and fishing. In fact, the lands we actually own are about 360,000 acres, which is less than 1% of, of the surface area of Oklahoma. We manage 1.6 million acres, but the bulk of that is stuff that we lease. So, um, so yeah. yeah. If you, so, Director Strong, you, you lease, the state leases land from private land owners? Yes, both okay. private landowners and the biggest chunk of our leased land is um, Corps of Engineers around their lakes. We manage those. So you'll see a lot of our WMAs that are associated with the reservoir across the state. If you think about Keystone or Hula or Eufaula, or they're all in Texoma. Um, we manage a lot of those. And those are long-term leases with the federal government, which would otherwise not be available to anybody to go on to hunt and fish if it weren't for us taking those on and managing them for good wildlife habitat and, and then hunting and fishing opportunities. So we do both of those when we, we continually annually, in fact, poll our hunters, um, do surveys after the hunting season wraps up. And number one issue of why they didn't do more hunting is always access to a place mm -hmm. to go hunting. And so, um, you know, that continues to be the number one concern. And so we will continue, especially as, we're one of few states that's actually can still growing hunting participation on a on a per capita basis, and so if we're going to continue to grow the number of people that are getting into into hunting, and we only we're confined to a finite amount of acreage that they can go hunting on unless they are um, able to own some land, then of course we're going to have to continue 
to try to build that land base one way or the other, purchase, lease. Um, there's advantages to us to either having the long-term lease, like 50-year leases like we have with the core, or owning it outright just because we'll put more money and effort into managing that if we know that we're going to be managing it long term than if it's a say it's a three-year lease with the private timber companies down in McCurtain County where we have over 300,000 acres leased that way but we know every three years that's going to come back up and we may not get it again and so we don't want to put in a bunch of you know amenities and and other things in, in areas like that so it's important for us to have a good combination of land in ownership as well as um, lease land and continue to grow that access opportunity. We also have a new program that was funded under the last farm bill um, called our Oklahoma Land Access Program. And we do annual leases with landowners that will allow the public to access their property for hunting or fishing opportunity, modeled after what Kansas has been really successful in doing with their walk-in hunt areas up in Kansas. So that's providing us another opportunity again short-term lease stuff but it does at least provide access and, and i think i heard you say earlier that the number of hunters is increasing in oklahoma each year yeah it's uh you know it's been um declining nationally for quite some time and um and so and then there are a number of states that are still seeing a growing number of license sales, but it, their populations are growing much faster than the rate of, of hunters. Texas is a good example of that. You might look at their growth in hunter participation, but if you look at their population is growing at a much faster clip. So pro rata basis, Outdoor Life magazine talked about Oklahoma being one of only four states in the country that are growing, still growing hunting on a, a per capita basis. So um, that's and and that's, a, that's a compliment to what your department's doing. I mean, they, it wouldn't be growing unless there were opportunities to be had by the, the new hunters. Yeah, and plenty of critters on the landscape for people to, to go chase. <laughs> and yeah. plenty of critters on the landscape. Um, I think Oklahoma is really unique in that the landscape ranges from plains to some mountain regions. Uh, I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that we have maybe as much as many miles of shoreline as Alaska with all the rivers, ponds, and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so it, it is, does that create a unique management obstacle to have the diversity of animals and terrain versus other states? You know, I haven't really thought of it as being too challenging as much as it is um, a blessing for us because um, it's the fact that we are the most eco-diverse state mile per mile of any other state in the country. So only- And, and nobody would ever think that about Oklahoma. Right. I mean, nobody would think that. No, they have this Dust Bowl image of Oklahoma, just about anybody that's never been here, or they maybe just land in Oklahoma City and they bounce back out. But um, yeah, no, it's true. Only uh, Alaska and California have more eco-regions than Oklahoma. And of course, those are much bigger states than we are. But you said it, you go from antelope to alligators, um, depending on if you're in the panhandle or far southeast Oklahoma, we've got, we've just got this amazing opportunity to have such rich biodiversity and eco-diversity in our state, all contained within a relatively, I mean, a day's drive. Yeah, and, and I've seen um, your department publishing drawings, uh, lotteries for elk, uh, black bear, and 
I don't think many people in Oklahoma even know that we have elk and black bear. That's pretty fascinating to me. It is very fascinating that, yeah, um, definitely within our borders, there are those that don't think we have those animals. We have, you know, antelope and we have an occasional um, herd of bighorn sheep that roam in and out of uh, up in Cimarron County as well. So, uh, yeah, they're there, and a lot more people outside the state don't know about it. So that's why I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to work with folks like Lieutenant Governor Matt Pinnell, who's really big on branding our state and getting word out there that uh, this state has a lot more to offer than you ever thought. So I, uh, This is a side note. I had some friends from Florida and Louisiana and they wanted to put together a duck and goose hunting trip. And I had absolutely no input on what they put together. And it ended up being around the Salt Plains here in Oklahoma. And that is a testament to the branding that Oklahoma is a first class, really top rate hunting and fishing state. Yeah, no, I had the same thing. I'm often, you know, we'll often have meetings, host meetings, or I'll have directors come in from other states. And I had, it was fall of 2019, I think it was November 2019. We had a, one of the national boards that I'm on had a meeting in town. And so the, the guys from the directors from uh, Alabama, Georgia, Texas, I think that was it, went with me. Um, and we, I took him to some a farm pond out in Dewey County. I mean, out there by Leedy, and set up set up on a farm pond, limited out on ducks by 9 a.m. And they were all like, "Oh my gosh, this <laughs> is like the best duck hunt I've ever been on." And it was out in dry, dusty Western Oklahoma. I'm like, "I'm telling you, I'm, we got it. We've got it." Uh, what would be your advice to private landowners? who want to contribute to increasing or benefiting some of the wildlife populations? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, 95% of the landscapes privately held in Oklahoma. And so obviously we are not gonna do a great job of managing the public's wildlife resources if we're not working with those private landowners. We actually have a, an entire private land team Department of Wildlife with um, some biologists stationed in the different quadrants of the state. They're a resource for landowners to call. They, that, that's their full-time job. Hey, come out, look at my place, tell me what I could do better. Tell me, importantly, how I might get some incentive money to be able to pay for this additional work, um, whether it's, you know, just following some land or putting fences in a different way, um, doing some work on water development, prescribed burning is usually the most effective thing we can teach people to do the right way and have huge benefits for a lot of wildlife species, including quail, which we call the firebird, um, and turkeys and some other stuff. So that's really the best way. Contact our private lands biologists and they, they have the resources. They can connect with NRCS, a lot of other Fish and Wildlife Service, a lot of other resources that are available for us to help landowners better manage and protect wildlife on their property. And the management on the state land, that is not only under the control of your department, but it's also something that you share that information with publicly. 
In other sure. words, you, you, you will um, identify what the state's doing, why they're doing it, so people that are interested can learn, can research what you guys are doing to mimic that on their properties. Yeah, absolutely. We will regularly, routinely schedule what we call field days um, scattered at one of our properties across the state. We'll partner with um, conservation organizations like, you know, Quail, Quail Forever, NWTF, National Wild Turkey Federation, Ducks Unlimited, on and on and on. And we'll partner with uh, researchers and extension agents from um, the universities around the state, OSU or whatever, and put together these field days, invite area landowners to come out and see firsthand what we're doing on our property to improve the habitat for wildlife and maybe impart some wisdom and give you some tips on something you could transfer. And the beauty of those is they're out there in those. We talked about the eco diversity of the state. I mean, if you're a landowner out in Woods County, come to our field day at this property we have in Woods County because what we're doing here has great applicability to what you're doing around us. And it probably has no applicability to what a landowner is doing down in McCurtain County, right? So it's important for us to scatter those out and try to get more people involved in uh, in managing their habitat for wildlife and not just for strictly for farming and ranching. And uh, along with the, the do's, can you give us some examples of don'ts? For example, in Florida, they had the anaconda, I think, the the in the glades yeah yeah introduced which has become a legitimate problem there uh what are some things that you see landowners private landowners doing that you would consider just a don't well number one i think on the list would be don't preclude fire you know there are so many landowners and this isn't universally true there are some places in certain conditions you probably don't want to burn but for the for the um, for the most part, um, not burning, prescribed burning your place is, is a really bad thing for wildlife. It allows a lot of those invasives to take off. Um, Eastern red cedars is a great example of something that if you aren't burning routinely, it's going to take over. And that's not good for the rancher or somebody trying to manage wildlife. And so that's number one. Don't graze your grass to the ground. Um, don't plow the field from fence row to fence row. I mean, if you can, you know, leave some fallow areas here and there, little edges, little scruffy parts um, are always good for wildlife. And wildlife really, at the end of the day, need a variety of habitat. They typically need a place to go loaf where they're safe. They need a place to get food and water and shelter and all of those habitat types typically look different, right? So mixing it up and having a mosaic of different habitat types on your landscape is is important so the more you've got monoculture whatever growing the worse that is for wildlife and and there are some species that get planted um i remember uh, 20 years ago maybe um part of the crp program which is a program that follows land um but is is can be very beneficial to wildlife where they were allowing the planting of old world blue stem on that fallow land. I remember that. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a grass species that maybe makes good hay or whatever, but it is horrible. It has no value to wildlife whatsoever. So, you know, as a result, we start seeing when that stuff starts going on the landscape in, in thousands of acre chunks, then you start seeing the quail and the pheasant and the turkey and the lesser prairie chickens, all of those things plummet.
For sure, for sure. And uh, so when I was growing up, I remember tree lines. I remember uh, farmers not farming all the way to the dirt road. Uh, what, what caused the change in thinking? Was it just techniques and farming changed? Uh, what what was the evolution from farms typically having some habitat to now being 100% cult cultivated? Yeah, I, well, I think it's just a combination of factors. I mean, certainly technology has advanced to the point where you can you can cultivate a lot more acres with a much bigger piece of equipment as one person than you could before. Um, I think economics are a driver. I mean. The world population is growing. The amount of acres devoted to agriculture are, are not. So there's this pressure to produce more and more, to yield more and more crop per acre than you could get before. And so that causes you to want to stretch and cultivate every acre you can, plus increase productivity of that acre. So when it comes to weed control and fertilizer and big equipment and clean farming techniques. And so, you know, I think we just over time saw a combination of things shift to, and you know, if you can look back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, there were a lot more mom and pop farmers and ranchers out there. And today, a lot of those have been consolidated into really big operations. And I think just the because the economy is a scale, I mean, economics are such that that's the only way you can survive nowadays. So that's yeah. the way you've got to do it. Um, so the, you know, the good news is for those that'll, that will kind of reach out to us and work with us. There are some big farmers and ranchers out there that are very conservation oriented and minded. And if they'll reach out to us, we can work with them on instead of tilling that soil completely clean, let's, you know, leave some of the res crop residue behind and no till it. You can still plant it the next year, but it, it's just, you know, it's just better soil health and better for wildlife habitat, some of that kind of stuff. And so as the, the farmers, the, the farms grew, the production grew, they took a little bit of habitat as they grew. Did that influence um, the water quality? In other words, have you seen a change in the quality of the water? What is in the water? Yeah, no, you do. That's, that's definitely a, a um, factor as well. Um, back in the day when I was head of the Water Resources Board, we were kind of, you know, collecting data, doing monitoring, certainly um, sedimentation, siltations, usually the number one or number two cause of impairment of our waterways in the state. Um, and that, you know, comes from runoff. Um, it can come from urban runoff um, or, or it can be agricultural runoff. Um, so, you know, we know that somebody that'll partner with us try to keep that soil in place and not allow it to run off, it's not only good for their soil health and their farming operation, but it's good for water quality and, and fish and, and drinking water and all the other uses we have for our water. Yeah, I, uh, I think from what I hear from people that are doing a lot of fishing, the lakes, the rivers right now are about as clean as they've seen them for a long time. And I don't know what I can what that's attributed to, but the people that are out on the lakes, the people that are out on the rivers, seem to be um, of the position that things are getting cleaner, clearer. And I was wondering if you might have some input on what's doing that. You know, I'm not sure I have much other than you know anecdotal. Um, you know, I think 
that it's my sense of it too, that we were as a society starting to really industrialize fast and making some wrong turns and, and bad decisions for long-term sustainability. And then you saw things start to come into play like the Clean Water Act passed by Congress during the Nixon administration and Clean Air Act and that kind of thing. And I think as a result of you know, some of those new programs coming into play, um, we have seen a turnaround when it comes to environmental quality all the way around in our state. I, I still believe we have uh, a lot more that we can do. Um, but yeah, I think it's better today than it was 1970s, if you, you know, 1980s, even when it comes to stuff like that. So we're making improvements. That's good news. Um, people are starting to take into consideration these long-term sustainability issues when they're making decisions about what am I going to do on my farming operation, my ranching operation, my wastewater treatment plant, you know, whatever the case may be. And Director Strong, I, I think a lot of the universities are making that part of their curriculum in ag uh, classes. I, I think they're incorporating some type of environmental aspect to their classes. Is that, is that yeah. accurate? No, I think you're right. I mean, there's a, a much bigger sustainable agriculture movement out there than, you know, than we had 20 years ago and people weren't talking about sustainable agriculture except in terms of what's best for putting a pound of beef on my cattle and putting another bushel of wheat into into my harvest. Mm -hmm. uh, so now they're taking a lot more of these things into these sort of, you know, whole community, whole environment um, things into, into consideration um, as they contemplate their farming practices. And, you know, I like, because of that influence of my great grandpa um, farming through the Dust Bowl, I like to try to remind everybody, you know, the farmers and ranchers out there were some of the first conservationists that we had. I mean, they were talking about conserving these resources way before you had, um, you know, Earth Day and Clean Water Acts and everything else come into play. So I think at their, you know, at their heart, they, um, if they're sort of educated on some of the challenges we face and how, if we can show them some changes they could make to the operation that don't really impact their bottom line but have benefits to wildlife, they're they're quick to embrace that and adopt it. Yeah, I, I really think uh, people in Oklahoma love the land. The people in Oklahoma love the wildlife, and they're willing to adapt and change their practices to try to make things better. Along those lines, does the does your department? have a five or 10 year goal or plan of where we are today and where you guys would want us to be five, 10 years from now? Yeah, you know, we just were now in year two, I think of implementing a five year strategic plan for our agency at least. And of course that's focused on our goals and objectives for where we wanna be in, in five years. And then we're you know how you, you have to routinely kind of adjust it as conditions change on the landscape or COVID hits that you didn't plan for. You never know. So, um, so that I think is probably our our guide here within the agency um, when it comes to that. And then we're because it's so new, um, we're just in the process of sort of measuring a lot of the, or coming up with those performance measures that we need to be able to really um, measure ourselves and make sure that we're we're getting where we need to be but like i said earlier you know we're really focused on what we've done the last 100 years which is better management of habitat for fish and wildlife so we can grow those populations 
uh, healthy populations of fish and wildlife. But sort of new to our direction is growing uh, a passionate community of hunters and anglers out there, right? The ones that are really um, why we're in this business that we're in, the ones that we serve and the ones that fund everything that we do. Um, so, you know, th that that's going to be a real interesting part of everybody's job assignment at Department of Wildlife Conservation that they might not necessarily have, have thought of before. You know, those biologists and technicians that are out there on the wildlife management areas, they're, they're farming, they're on tractors and they're, you know, they're burning and they're, you know, harvesting some timber here and there, just manipulating the landscape, not a lot of interaction with people. Um, and so we've been doing really good at that for a hundred years. What we haven't been doing really good is how we manage people. And so sometimes, you know, biologists and technicians and folks that go into those um, natural sciences do that because they're not necessarily cut out to work with people either. So, um, so it's a that's the big challenge for us going forward. Everybody needs to understand that everything you do, even if you're sitting on a tractor, is responsible for having letting somebody have a better hunting or fishing experience, and that's getting them more engaged in in what we do and building that out and recruiting others into it. And and one thing I'd like to compliment the department on is in the last few years, I have seen not an overhaul but a real effort to become more user-friendly. In other words, the, the website you have now, today, has a hundred times more information than it did five or 10 years ago. Um, one thing that I thought was just incredibly efficient is the ability to tag deer digitally rather than uh, how we did it, you know, what, 10 years ago, we had to go to, uh, a place to get it uh, registered. And yeah. so I, I feel like the department is really doing its part in becoming more and more user-friendly, more and more efficient. And I think that is attracting uh, and very attractive to the young hunters, the young fishermen. And so that seems to be something I've seen as an outsider that the department's doing in an effort to gain attention and really edu provide the ability for the public to educate themselves. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. Yeah, we've, uh, instead of having to go onto our, what was archaic website to try to figure out what the regulations were, um, what kind of license you need, and then you had to either come in or go to Walmart to try to buy the license, we now have an app for that. So <laughs> I've got awesome. my lifetime license right there on my phone, I can go buy whatever else I need. It's, uh, yeah, no, when I, you know, when I came on board four and a half years ago, um, I knew the agency hadn't really done a strategic plan and since 1997, so it was way overdue. But there were some things that were just obvious, like, I mean, if you're frustrating hunters and anglers, they're gonna give up. And so we've got to be able to have more streamlined and easy ways to understand the regulations, to get, what license you need to find the information you need. Um, one of the funny things, we, we had already decided we were gonna go through a lot of effort and move to this new online licensing system with the app and all that stuff because that was just gonna put us light years ahead, make it so much easier for everybody. But right at the front end of that, before anybody really knew, I get um, my first encounter with Blake Shelton, who's a member of our Wildlife Foundation now and a big supporter of all things fish and wildlife and 
And but my first encounter was him calling, cussing me out on the phone because he had some guys coming in to fish Lake Lake Texoma, and he could not. He kept getting stuck on our website in the same place. He said, "There's this big stop sign that keeps popping up," and I. He said, I'm pretty smart and tech savvy guy. I can figure this out, but your site sucks. I was like, oh, <laughs> nice to meet you, Blake Shaw, right. too, but we're working on that. We'll have that vastly improved in one year. So lots of impetus behind some of those things. But that, yeah, thank you for saying that. That's all part of our, what we call R3, recruitment, reactivation, retention of hunters and anglers, identifying those things that are a bar to participation, whether it's they need more access, they need cleaner, easier to understand regulations, they need easier tools to be able to do what they do, like the e-check out in the field instead of having to go to check stations, that kind of thing. And you know, uh, I got, I don't remember if it was an email, it could have even been a flyer, and it was asking me, it was basically a survey on what questions were easier to understand. Um, and I'm not saying this very well, but it was the department reaching out to the general public saying, what do you like better? And that's the first time I'd seen that happen before. And I thought that showed a lot of effort on your part. Yeah, I feel like we're, um, you know, that's the other thing, I guess, you know, if you're sh not shifting focus, but equally focusing on people management, not just wildlife management. One of the things that in, in, invokes is a lot of social science that we need to do, right? So we've got a couple of people on staff that are master's degree social scientists and their job is to you know, put together surveys for us to get to the bottom and get answers for whatever it is we're trying to, uh, you know, at any given time, we've probably got some sort of survey going out there on the streets. Man, um... Director Strong, I'm proud of you. You're doing an incredibly good job. I see a difference in the presence of the department over the last few years. And I think that Oklahoma, the hunters, the fishermen, owe the department a real thank you. And I personally think you're doing an outstanding job. Well, Thank you for that. I'm flattered, Pepper, but I would, <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you to the one and three Oklahomans that hunt or fish, because without them, we couldn't do any of this. And, and that's what keeps us going financially. That's what keeps our passion fire lit. Um, that's what it's all about. So thank you to the one and three and to the other two thirds. You don't know what you're missing. I love it. I love it. J.D. Strong, thank you so much. Good to see you.